The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are now full on in the season of summits and big international gatherings. Last weekend was the Group of 20 summit in Rome, where they talked a lot about things that were very important to countries in the global north, not a whole lot that was important in the global south. Climate change, they tried to talk about it. They really didn't get much accomplished. They focused on the global corporate minimum tax. That was the thing that Joe Biden going into the summit was very keen on doing. What that basically was, was American companies were hiding themselves in other countries at lower tax rates, and they wanted to basically shelter themselves from American tax and they wanted to create a global system so that all corporations pay the same tax and can't evade taxes. Now, that was their priority. What wasn't discussed was debt relief. And they were pretty upfront about it, Cobus, that they weren't going to talk about debt relief. It wasn't really on the agenda very much. And literally what we noticed today, looking at the communique from this weekend summit and what they did back in, let's see, about July, which was the finance minister summit, they more or less just copied and pasted it. This is an issue that is stuck. And meantime, we're starting to see debt levels and the the debt crisis balloon in many parts of the global south. So that's going to speak to the issue we're going to talk today. There's another summit that's going on now for the next two weeks in Glasgow, which is the COP26 summit. Again, the, the voices of the global south are not being heard very much because it seems that the big global north countries are not in alignment at all. So we're going to talk about that. And finally, What we think will happen at the end of the month, but certainly before the end of the year, is the big forum on China-Africa cooperation conference that will take place sometime in Dakar, Senegal. Again, we'll talk about the voices there. So, Kobus, the key question now is who is being heard and who is being represented at all of these big summits? Well, you know, the short answer is not very many people. Um, the, you know, obviously it's an extremely elite space. Um, it's the elite of the elite. Um, the, the, so j- just for context, the G20 has a bunch of, of, of different kind of feeder mechanisms in which they, they kind of gather insights from, from these different groups, including civil society, think tanks, women's groups and and, and, so, and so forth, um, youth groups and so on. And they, they kind of suck in these kind of insights from these groups and then it kind of gets filtered through to end up, you know, kind of in theory, kind of into, in the, and to inform the final communique. But, you know, kind of this is such a, it's such a kind of a, you know, dizzying, at such a dizzying height, um, you know, that very few people even make it into those feeder mechanisms and then very few of those ideas actually make it up, you know, kind of all the way into, into the final communique. 
Well, let's get a perspective from some of the underrepresented voices at these conferences. And we're so thrilled to have on the show for the first time Michaela Urskug, who is a researcher at the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. She's also part of the Dongsheng Collective and a coordinator of the No Cold War Platform, a peace activist platform that promotes multilateralism and global cooperation. Mika joins us on the line from Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Mika. Good afternoon, Eric. Good afternoon, Corpus. Or good evening, Eric, I suppose. You're somewhere in Asia. (laughs) Good evening. We're all spread all over, but happy to have you on the show today, and especially because we want to talk about, again, this question of representation and voices. You speak a lot to the workers' perspective, and that's something that, again, in the broader discourse about China-Africa is often not fully represented. What we'd like to do before we get deep into the summits and also into China-Africa issues and the conversations that you're having and the research that you're doing, I think most people are probably not familiar with Tricontinental, and it's it's got a fascinating history that dates back to the 1960s and some of the revolutionary movements in Africa. Can you talk to us a little bit about the history of Tricontinental and what the organization's mission is? So... Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, as it exists today, was basically launched in 2017, kind of out of the mandate and ambit of different social movements, trade unions, social justice groups, having come together a year before um, in Brazil to kind of find how we create a you know, international people's assembly where often the kind of questions, the dilemmas of humanity that we face as working class people, social movements, isn't necessarily represented in international spaces, let alone in some of these, you know, um, state to state um, meetings. And so prior to this and the kind of heritage we've taken from is in, in January of 1966, hosted in Havana, Cuba, we had a conference of you know, revolutionary movements from Africa, Asia, Latin America, um, who were kind of called OSPAL at the time, uh, the Solidarity with the Peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And all of those represented essentially were coming out of you know, um, anti-colonial movements, recently independent states. You know, we had representation from uh, Guinea-Bissau with Amilcar Cabral was present at that first conference. In fact, one of the major uh, coordinators, uh, Mehdi Ben Barka, a Moroccan um, Marxist and uh, revolutionary and anti-imperialist, was one of the kind of core founders um, of this Process and in fact was assassinated the year before in 1965, prior to the gathering in Havana. And many of the people who also were represented were also coming from um, the non-aligned movement out of the 1955 Bandung uh, Bandung meeting, which brought again a lot of different anti-colonial leaders and projects who essentially all across the spectrum were looking to find ways in which they could form a broad front of anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist coordination and essentially try to figure out ways in which they uh, they could expand and create a national economic development plan with these newly independent nations and break away from some of the colonial dependencies of the past. And keep in mind, at the time that these processes are unfolding in the late 60s, um, as Samir Amin, the great uh, Egyptian Marxist, put it, there was kind of three blocks 
of, of, of international groupings happening at the time. We had the kind of social democratic Western welfare state that was largely um, represented in the West. Then we had the kind of Soviet system, which had the kind of clear socialist countries at the time, Cuba, Vietnam, etc., were all grouped together um, following a very open socialist uh, experiment or, or, or movement towards socialism. And then we also had the kind of Bandung group, um, which loosely speaking was, you know, mediated between more kind of reformist but still anti-imperialist groups um, that, you know, maybe were represented by NASA in Egypt, as well as the fact that um, all of this played into the kind of politics of the newly formed Organization of African Unity, right, which, you know, later became uh, the African Union. And within the African Union, as I'm sure you guys well know, they were th at least three different um, factions, if you will, um, of of, of, of groupings that had slightly different politics and slightly different aspirations on how we were going to pursue an African development project. And many of those in the quote-unquote uh, progressive states, what was called the Casablanca group, which is Egypt, Ghana, Guinea, Mali, Libya, Morocco, they also played a formative role in some of the kind of tricontinental processes. So out of this project, uh, tricontinental then becomes the kind of ideological, media, um, coordinating platform in which various policies and different intergovernmental initiatives could be pushed. And eventually, uh, we do get um, really important initiatives becoming rooted in the United Nations, pushed by the tricontinental processes, like, uh, you know, later, under the auspices of Julius Nereida, we had the South Center developed in Geneva, which is supposed to kind of support the aspirations and commitments of the global South. And so that's sort of the kind of early inheritance that we and the spirit that we today take on, because we work with trade unions, uh, social movements, I mean, from NUMSA in South Africa to the Landless Peasants Organization, MST in Brazil, to, uh, you know, different co pharma cooperatives in Tanzania like Mviwata to, I mean, Abahlali Basem Jondolo, the Shack Dwellers Movement in uh, South Africa, which is fighting for land and dignity and, and housing. Um, all of those kinds of groupings have tried to re-establish a network, um, an international network that could be pushing in some of these more official spaces for more radical policies that would deal with working class issues, that would deal with issues of inequality from a, I would like to say, a more um, radical approach and based on a kind of historical grounding in left progressive movements. And just as a, sorry, just as a short caveat, just keep in mind that the, the break that then happened that kind of undermined some of these progressive processes um, was in the late 1970s when we saw the kind of economic crisis happening in the West there was then the movement towards trying to, you know, re-signify their economic projects within Africa, within the global south. And whether it was through, as you guys know, through various coups, whether it was certain leaders in Africa moving towards, you know, more conservative agendas, adopting neoliberal policies, structural adjustment, a lot of these progressive networks eventually broke down. And we saw kind of in the late 90s, the NGOization of civil society, of a lot of these social movements being less connected to their governments and finding space within governmental space, government organizations to advocate for their different interests. And so it's only been in the last 
few years, we've been seeing within different countries the development of more independent politics by working class organizations. And so now there is this like push for, uh, we recently actually had the public launch of the International People's Assembly, uh, which is a, a network of over 200 organizations, the, the kinds I've mentioned with a working class orientation, with a left orientation, who would like to um, push for counter proposals within the official spaces. And we've seen this in a couple of years ago, we had a, you know, a people's BRICS when the BRICS summit was held. Even now with the COP, there are, I'm sure you've heard of the counter COP movements where a lot of the kind of climate justice youth and different kind of, um, especially in, in, in Europe and, and uh, the US, different climate justice grassroots organizations are trying to push for their mandate to be heard, even though they're not necessarily within the official space and of discourse that's going to be happening amongst world leaders. Can I just ask a very quick question just before we get into the summits and China, Africa? So the roots of the organization go all the way back to a very polarized period during the Cold War, which was, again, Marxist, communist and capitalist. And the world was clearly divided in that. Today, the issues it seems like you're focusing on are more class based and economic. Do some of those ideological traditions carry through today in the organization in terms of the Marxist communist tilt or is it more economically driven and class based? I mean, for us, you know, the question of economics is tied to the political question. Sure. But a lot of our organizations, for example, NUMSA, which I'm sure Corbus you're quite familiar with, uh, which broke away from COSATU, which is the the main federation, which was when the Workers' Federation within the Tripartite Alliance in South Africa, which is the alliance between the African National Congress, the South African Communist Party, and um, the federation. NUMSA in 2013 broke away or essentially was kicked out of COSATU and NUMSA being the largest um, stakeholder in terms of membership at the time because of political differences, because of feeling like there was a kind of reformist push that wasn't actually dealing with the issues of inequality. And so NUMSA left at that moment who explicitly talk about themselves as a Marxist-Leninist-inspired trade union, who explicitly advocate for a kind of political project outside of the day-to-day work of a trade union having to, you know, operate on the kind of collective bargaining on behalf of different workers. So there is a kind of, from many of these organizations, I mean, the, the political spectrum is varied, but most of them, I would say, would be more on the left and uh, draw on traditions that come from Marxist and socialist traditions of the past and traditions that often have been largely, I think, hidden by the National Liberation Project. So you mentioned the the Bandung conference and that, that Bandung moment where, you know, kind of where, where there was, I think, a very close overlap between between China, the country, and China, the kind of force for international kind of, you know, kind of anti-imperialist kind of struggle and, and you know, kind of workerist struggle. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see China's position in these struggles today. I mean, it's it's a, we, we, it's a quite a different China, you know, kind of in the world now. This is where I think, you know, it gets the role of some of the organizations I work with. We have to play many different roles and understand the complexity and nuance of certain spaces and propositions. And so largely for many of us, we see, and again, I'll give the caveat that different leaders and working class organizations might not have the same understanding or conception of what China means in the world today than maybe the mass base. 
So within so within um, NUMSA, there are different opinions on the value that China or the agency that China lends itself to the African Development Project. But for us at this moment, coming from the background of, you know, we've largely, most African states have largely been unable to pursue a kind of meaningful development project because of their dependency on selling raw materials of uh the kind of power of multi, multinational corporations that largely come from the West and the like lack of sufficient industrialization in a lot of countries has meant that we do see the benefits, despite the many contradictions, of the Chinese presence in Africa because we come from you know the Western aid model of, you know, the Chinese call it blood transfusion, where there's a sense of when it's critical and dire, infusing certain um, financing or certain aid, but largely not producing conditions in which African people can pursue their own development, which, you know, the flip side of for us has been China with their so-called uh, blood, uh, what do they call it, blood generation, where these infrastructure projects, limited or, you know, kind of as short term as it's been, it's only been in the last 15 or so years we've really seen things pick up. But for us, it still offers an alternative that, and I'm sure you've had these conversations with many other people, that gives a certain leverage in relation to um, the West's presence on the continent. And I mean, I, I find it often very challenging to speak about China in isolation without having the Western presence alongside it. I mean, a lot of the conversations around, you know, the recent thing in the DRC, it's strange to me that it's always Chinese nationals that tend to take on a kind of national character of the entire China. There's very little differentiation between state actors, Chinese firms, individual Chinese people, but you never see that kind of standard being put onto Australian mining companies in the DRC, European mining companies, Canadian companies. I mean, few people talk about Canada being one of the main, you know, extractive mining or having some of the main mining extractive multinational corporations. And so for us, many of us see them producing or China and Africa producing at least a little bit of leverage where we can push for certain less conditional contracts and relationships with actors across the world. I was reading in the, you know, the diplomat, the newspaper, the online paper. I was reading how it was really interesting how they were talking about, hey, it's time the Quad really invested in greater vaccine production in Africa. Look at what China's doing in Morocco, etc. And again, it's on a very small scale, but with just the mention of China investing into vaccine production and, you know, technology transfer, etc., all of a sudden it's people are raising like panicking that the Quad, the US, the Western world needs to do the same. So it might come with its limitations. It might not necessarily always come out the way we want it to with the maximum benefits geared towards African people's development, but it does offer us some sort of leverage in a world in which we've been historically underdeveloped in a historical context that I think is often missing in this China-Africa conversation, the historical context that colonialism produced certain predatory relationships that ultimately Walter Rodney, the great uh, Guyanese thinker and political analyst, uh, spoke about it as whilst the West was able to develop its industries off the back of 
the African continent's raw materials, it just dug up holes and left us with holes. And what we see from China is not holes necessarily, even though they're, you know, digging and mining, etc. But we see some form of infrastructural benefits that even give us kind of precedence to call for more productive relationships with other global partners. It's fascinating because, again, I see the point that you're making in terms of how China's provided a very helpful lever for, and this is what we saw 15, 20 years ago when the Chinese first started coming in and were welcomed into African countries in order to help break the dependencies and the chains of control that the West had traditionally had for a long time. Even though the West had largely disengaged from Africa, they still retained enormous control and having China there as an option both for financing and for support and for all sorts of different ways was very, very valuable. That being said, the Leninist, traditional Leninist model of development from the global north to the global south has some hallmarks in the contemporary China-Africa relationship where raw materials are extracted from the global south, sent to the global north, manufactured into finished goods, and then sold back into the global south at a profit. That is the classic Leninist model. There is certainly some of that today in the China-Africa relationship where the bulk of exports from Africa to China are comprised of timber, minerals, and oil. How do you reconcile the complexity of the relationship where there are some of the hallmarks of the past and then a lot of the things you're talking about in terms of the dynamics of leverage and choice and agency for African countries that China also provides? Sure. And for the audiences, I just want to make, if I'm allowed, a small correction. There, Absolutely. That what you say is the Leninist model. No, it is the Lenin's understanding of imperialism. Fair enough. And how imperialism operates, right? Right. So just for clarity that the Leninist model doesn't advocate that No, no, no. I think that's really good. I appreciate that because I will be the first to admit that I, I'm out of my depth of expertise here, so I'm glad you were able to correct me on that. No, sure, that imperialism extracts from the global south, manufactures in the global north, then, you know, resells the, the manufactured finished products um, to the global south. So that is Lenin's understanding of imperialism, which... And is there a hint of that in the China-Africa relationship today? So I think, again, this is a way of the kind of... I don't think we can really see how that's going to... Definitively, I don't think we can say right now in such a short period of time what that means. Because, for example, um, again, and I know the infrastructure thing might be very minimal if we're looking at the border spectrum and everyone cites, you know, the like, what is it, 6,000 kilometers of roads and everything, which is relatively, you know, small in comparison. But at that stage, it was fully about underdeveloping any kind of capacity of Africans to produce for themselves. So even the small industries and the small kind of industrialization uh, exchanges that have been happening are still something worth holding on to, despite the fact that there is still a kind of, uh, as you mentioned, a kind of extractive, you know, produce, manufacture in China, return to Africa. But some of the other benefits, I think we can't undermine, again, even if it's just setting a precedent that African countries deserve to have good, uh, you know, the Center for Disease Control, like a well-funded Center for Disease Control that's, you know, largely now being funded by China. The fact that a lot of, like, the technology transfer that we've seen that has, you know, allowed places like Ethiopia to, you know, rapidly develop and has also allowed Ethiopia to, again, leverage those different relationships. Because what is the safari com? What Safari was that deal? Kenya? Yeah, the, 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 that was the mobile telecom deal in Ethiopia. But it also had various stakeholders from 
you know, the West. That's right. On was on one side was a DFC backed, the United States backed one side. The Chinese through MTN were on another side with the Silk Road Fund. The problem is the deal now is in question because the $500 million from the DFC uh, may be subject to U.S. sanctions against sure. Ethiopia for the war in Tigray. So that is all now in doubt as to what will happen with that deal. But it nonetheless, I think, still produced the conditions in which we could even imagine that kind of a deal. When... In, I mean, in the last uh, few years, this sense of building up a new kind of Cold War mentality of the West versus the East isn't in the interests of African people. We want cooperation. We want collaboration. I mean, you've mentioned in many ways, I mean, what this build back... B3W. Yes, the B3W. I mean, even though it doesn't seem like there's much content to it, and we're yet to see if it will be anything material that will come out of it, Whilst the U.S. was kind of throwing this at the at China's face, I, I remember listening to a lot of the, you know the foreign ministers saying we welcome any kind of concrete material contributions the U.S. can make to the development of Africa. That would actually enable us to produce more cooperative models that center African development needs. Right. So, wait. Well, I don't know if I'm fully answering your question. Well, I think you have in the sense that there are hallmarks of the historical imperialist relationship, but at the same time, it's very, very different. I guess my my other question is then, when we look at the contributions of, say, the United States in Africa today, especially in the public health field, uh, they've been quite significant. And, you, you know, but at the same time, I would assume that you are not entirely thrilled with what the U.S. has done in Africa, especially in terms of the role of militarization and other aspects. Can you speak to this this question of the U.S. versus China and the different contributions they've made? Sure. And I think uh, thanks for mentioning the, the around militarism, because I think even that example speaks to a lot of challenges that have been placed at the, 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 the doorstep of the African Union. I mean, so in Tricontinental, we produced a study called uh, Defending Our Sovereignty, uh, Foreign Military Bases in Africa. And part of what we initially start framing, and I think this speaks to the question of Fokak um, and the fact that every analyst who's been talking about Fokak raised the question of how are African leaders going to kind of coalesce around a collective agenda that's regionally integrated, that's a kind of collective strategy that they can come strongly with. And we have to understand it in relation to the internal fragmentation that the African Union has, as well as the external pressures. And in terms of the internal fragmentation, in the last, since the 90s, we've seen how, again, you know, we can't talk about a kind of unified pan-Africanist project when time and time again, we see examples in which various heads of state uh, defer from or step out of certain political agreements and processes, like we saw in the Burundian civil war between 93 and 2005, where, you know, there was this political crisis, there was uh, public protest, there was state repression, and... In 2015, they were the the, the, the African Union's uh, Peace and Security Council was authorized again by a group of you know African leaders saying let's solve our own issues was going to deploy you know 5,000 troops in a kind of prevention and protection mission. But uh, what we had is that he the president at the time Nkurunziza uh, he pushed an agenda amongst other African heads of state to block the political, I mean, the Peace and Security Council's decision. And so in that moment, we see this internal fragmentation amongst African leaders, which prevents us from moving, you know, 
step by step together when it comes to tackling our own issues. Then in terms of the external pressures, I mean, once again, this is where the role of like the of NATO, of US militarism, of AFRICOM um, on the continent has become extremely uh, detrimental to our own ability to act on our own interests in three major ways, for me at least, is how it continues to undermine the sovereignty of many states. And I don't think this is spoken about. You know, China's always uh, getting these accusations that China's going to seize, you know, sovereign assets if we defer on, you know, debt repayments or loan repayments, etc. But we don't have that conversation in tandem with the fact that, for example, uh, let's take Ghana and Niger. In Ghana, in what was it? I want to say 2015, but maybe I'm getting that wrong. But four or five years ago, Ghana makes an agreement with um, AFRICOM and basically allows, an, like Article 5 of the agreement, allows for Ghana to kind of provide unimpeded access and use of uh, Kokota. International Airport for United States forces um, and United States contractors and other, you know, kind of people within that um, ambit. It, it, and in this process, it basically allows that, you know, uh, United States forces can, you know, operate in the region. They can use the airport. They can use it also as the, they called it like the, the bus lane to West Africa. The U.S. forces are exempt from, you know, they basically get diplomatic immunity. They can carry weapons without necessarily being questioned. And for us in the African context, that is a kind of, you know, giving up of certain elements of our sovereignty that allows the U.S. Army to operate almost freely and without any any form of recourse in, in even a legal way. And the same thing in Niger when it comes to um, the not only the U.S. but the French military operations that are happening there, which you know I, I mentioned in the talk with uh, Rania Kalik. That's all happening in relation to the fact that there's you know the, these big uranium deposits, which are, I mean are largely looking less and less like they can fulfill the needs um, of those operating it, but the. F the French company Arriva, since the 1970s, has been mining that uranium almost exclusively, and that uranium has been, you know, lighting up a third of uh, French light bulbs, right? And so, in terms of the foreign military presence, one, it undermines our sovereignty on many levels. Two, it continues to function as a, you know, a protector of of of, of Western corporate interests, and we saw this in 2001 um, with, you know. Dick Cheney's national energy policy and various other subsequent policies that essentially said, you know, the role of the um, AFRICOM should be to assess and strengthen manufacturing and industrial-based supply chain resilience of the United States. That's the name of one of the one of the documents. And so again, we distrust the conversation around trying to assist us with security, even though we've you know, embarked on various, you know, uh, security training projects, um, intelligence gathering projects that are supposedly to better equip African militaries to deal with their own conflicts. But in fact, it seems like it continues to maintain the kind of stronghold over clear sources of mineral wealth and, and resources. And then lastly, which I think is, again, totally against uh, the interests of African people, is the U.S. military in the last few years. And I think, I mean, I think you interviewed... Uh, that Colonel um, uh, Chris Chris Wyatt, yes, who we have very different politics, I'm sure, but spoke about the fact that the U.S. government's you know new strategy, new Africa strategy, was 
characterized around how to push back against the competitive um, forces of China and of Russia. And I think he said, you know, in the actual document, it mentions China more times than a lot of the key African strategic partners. So what we have now is that the functions of the U.S. military AFRICOM, which again is is totally counterintuitive to the initial aspirations of the African Union that basically wanted to push out any foreign military um, on the continent, is now kind of maximizing its um, agenda, its, you know, uh, a kind of security initiative to push back against what's a growing Chinese presence on the continent. And people feel that even though there is, you know, mixed reception of, um, of, of China and Africa, but many of the people we speak to, especially those in Ghana who are on the left spectrum, see the presence of the U.S. military forces as undermining sovereignty, pushing a new Cold War against China, and ultimately defending uh, and securing certain kind of supply chains for the West's continued, you know, corporate development. As you pointed out earlier, um, you know, there's this one, one of the complications in the Africa-China relationship is that there's frequently a conflation of different Chinese actors. And one of the really important ones um, among the Chinese actors is the the Chinese Communist Party itself. And um, and obviously, you know, if one speaks to people in Washington, frequently the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party, is is described as basically Satan himself. But you know, kind of in, in speaking with African stakeholders, I, f- I frequently get a, a lot more kind of nuanced kind of range of opinions in terms of where there's where there's a lot of 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 kind of uh, appreciation, even envy, uh, particularly among among you know kind of stakeholders within within the tripartite alliance in South Africa about about the role of the Communist Party and, and about also the role of, of a kind of a kind of a centralized planning mechanism. So I was wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about how the party itself, you know, considering that it also you know has communist in the name, you know, kind of like that it it kind of sees itself as carrying this kind of communist legacy into the twenty first century, like how the party is viewed in African kind of workerist and social progressive circles? I mean, that could be a whole hour conversation on its own um, because there's... Try to keep it to four minutes. (laughs) Within four minutes. Well, then maybe I can raise with you um, the study Tricontinental undertook with some of... um, some of the people we know in China and some of the kind of researchers, policymakers um, in China, which it, we have a study called Serve the People, and it's basically about China's poverty alleviation program. And the reason we decided to kind of have this uh, study, which is a mix of storytelling, as many people you both have said China's not great at sharing its own stories in a way that's like, you know, centers the human beings, centers the human lives, centers the complexities of trying to build a different project. But in that study, what we tried to do is share actually what was the path of of of, of, of constructing this poverty alleviation scheme. And the reason I'm raising this is because a lot of people just have questions. They don't actually know what the Chinese Communist Party has been doing. They don't fully understand the different mechanisms, processes, participants in that process. And amongst us, we do have a kind of almost like a historical gap where just after opening up, many on the kind of far left spectrum in Africa sort of saw the opening up as a digression from from the socialist project. That process of opening up 
necessitated a certain kind of industrial development, as you all know, from the late 70s, required them to have a certain industrial development that could kind of develop the means of production, develop the agricultural sector, could develop the kind of trade relations that would enable them to have enough of a surplus to reinvest that into social programs. And I think what is often left out of that narrative is that, you know, for us on the African continent where we have, what was it, as of this year, 36% of our population, like around 500 million people in Africa are living in extreme poverty by World Bank standards, right? Something along those lines. For us, when we were hearing all these numbers around, you know, 850 million have been pulled out of poverty since, you know, 1949. And since the targeted poverty alleviation scheme began in um, 2013, we've seen, you know, nearly 100 million more um, exiting extreme poverty. Very few understand the processes that went into that. Very few understand the significance of that and the significance of moving from essentially in 1949, uh, China was amongst the like, you know, I think there was only eight African countries and two Asian countries that were poorer than China at the time. They were like the 11th poorest country to in the space of a lifetime, seeing a complete shift. And that shift often is described in terms of like, well, China has these big billionaires, it's, the inequality is great, but the process of development has now, as you've seen through the Xi Jinping administration since 2013, has been slowly geared more and more towards social needs and addressing the social needs of people. And, you know, in the study, we look at how China approached it through, you know, multi-dimensional understanding of poverty, where it's not simply about, you know, they call it one income, two assurances and three guarantees, where it's not just about raising the conditions for a minimum wage to be a lot better, but also assuring the two assurances being assuring that people had access to food and clothing and the three guarantees being access to basic medical services, safe housing, safe drinking water, electricity and, you know, compulsory education for nine years. All of those things regardless of the uh, zigzagging nature of the processes, the like mistakes, the successes, is an extremely attractive prospect for African people who've only known poverty, who've only known domination, who've only known a kind of lack of empowerment in their own processes and who have been unable to deal with poverty in a significant way. And I mean, in the, the study, which... I'd encourage everyone to read, we detail the different ways in which they approach the poverty alleviation question. And I think it's it's quite novel for those of us who come from a kind of uh, blood transfusion uh, aid pumping into a sector that doesn't necessarily produce conditions in which people are able to, to, to lift themselves out of poverty. Well, let's close our discussion because I know you've got to get back to work. Uh, on FOCAC, it, we talked about at the beginning of the show that this is the season of summits and that the diversity of voices inside these summits is not as rich as it should be. So thinking about the FOCAC summit, what would you like to see on the agenda? What are you hoping will come out of this meeting? And just give us your take on, on FOCAC coming up in possibly the end of November, definitely before the end of the year. I think I have a slightly different answer than perhaps many of the kind of <laughs> bigwig political analysts um, who spend a lot more time thinking about the economics of, of all of this. But mine is... I think you said in, uh, was it two or three podcasts ago, you were speaking with um, a woman from Senegal? Mm. No, Afula Shade, yeah. 
I think you, you mentioned you were like, is, it, it's, it's, isn't it a bit strange that Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, is going to get on an airplane? Well, I'm corrected about that. So let me, let me, let me correct the record mm. because this is a ministerial mm-hmm. summit, not a presidential summit. So, my, so I was incorrect in stating that this is a presidential summit, a leader summit. It will be just a, not just a, but it's a ministerial summit. So there's probably no chance that Ramaphosa will get on a plane to go to a ministerial summit in Dakar. Okay, okay. Well, then the point I still wanted to make was that what I would like to see out of this is not necessarily the kind of, you know, what energy deals we will get, what kind of green collaborations we will get. Mine would be for the African ministerial group or the representatives of African states to come back and realize that did we have a significant and sufficient, you know, consultative process amongst us that prepared us to even enter that conversation. Because from what I understand, given the fact that you know no one knows when it's gonna happen, are documents and proposals being circulated on time, are there enough processes of consultation that build certain consensus amongst African states? If it goes horribly wrong, I would love for um, these different African leadership groups to kind of step back and think about what are the regional processes that would allow us to better um, leverage our our desires and our needs in such a space because ultimately the weakness of of the kind of collective agenda amongst African states is what's going to hold us back um, at least in the next few years and not going to give us a kind of bargaining power collective bargaining power we need in those kinds of spaces because it feels at least in the last few years a bit of a you know every state for themselves. And even though we have these beautiful, you know, the agenda 2063 that say all these lovely things about Pan-Africanism, about people-centered development, what we're not seeing is decisive kind of regional integrated strategies that could be something to leverage in those kinds of spaces. So if I understand correctly, the main takeaway out of FOCEC that you'd like to see is better regional and even pan-African coordination and cooperation in negotiating with the Chinese in order to more effectively benefit from the relationship. Yes. Okay. Mika, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It was wonderful to hear your points of view on this and to get a better understanding of the work you're doing at Tricontinental. Mikaela Urshkug is a researcher at the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Mika, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing and to follow what Tricontinental is doing, where can they find you online? Basically, I think Twitter is always the best place. So where can they find you on Twitter? What's your handle on Twitter? The Tricontinental is the handle for my organization. And if you go on to Tricontinental, thetricontinental.org, um, folks can also subscribe to our newsletter there. We produce a, like monthly dossiers, we produce studies, and we have a weekly newsletter that kind of deals with some of the issues facing the working masses of the world. Okay, and we'll put a link to Tricontinental's Twitter handle. I'll also look up your Twitter handle, put that in the show notes, and I'll put your report on China's elimination of extreme poverty that you did as well. We'll put that all in the show notes. Mika, thank you so much again. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. And also we, I'm sure all of us across the world, thank you guys for the kind of work you've been putting in the last few years. What I love about what Mika was saying was how the power of the Chinese story in terms of poverty alleviation and infrastructure and and, and economic development carries an enormous amount of resonance in Africa that I think 
is underappreciated by many parts of the outside world, particularly in the West and in Japan and elsewhere. And it's one of the things that I notice the most in monitoring Chinese diplomatic Twitter feeds in Africa is how often they will just put up pictures of the Qingdao subway or a new port or just a piece of infrastructure, new bus lines in China. And again, to I think to people in the US or in Europe who look at a piece of infrastructure and think, what are they doing? Who's paying attention to that? But that is so aspirational in many parts of the global South. I'll tell you right here in, in Vietnam, it's taken us 11, 12 years to build a subway. So the idea of having a beautiful functioning subway system in the speed that China built its subway systems is something to me is a very, very powerful form uh, of, of soft power diplomacy that, again, I think Mika was speaking to and, and I think is underappreciated in many parts of the world. Yes, I, I think, you know, like for me, one of one of the most kind of the clearest examples of that was like early in the, the pandemic, um, the Chinese built an entire like COVID hospital uh, within a week or something. It's like very, very quickly. Um, ten, yeah, days. ten days. Ten, ten days to two weeks. But it was really and they had a time lapse of it going yes. up. And everybody in Africa was like, holy cow. Yes, that time I mean, Twitter went, just thought that was the most amazing thing. Yeah, it went thing. viral in Africa. Um, and, you know, and, and, and it sparked a bunch of conversations, uh, uh, you know, most of them being like, why can't we do that, you know? Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's very... For, for me, the other issue is that um, I, I think the, 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 the greater context, and I think Miko's great at pointing this out, is that... The idea of Africa as perpetually and systemically underdeveloped, there's there's no discomfort with that idea in Western countries, right? Kind of like they're very used to that idea. They're not no one is running around with their hair on fire in like Copenhagen because Africa is underdeveloped, right? Kind of like they're, they're, it's 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 not it's not news for them. Um, and you know, and and the way that that's you know that that kind of the the in, the institutionalization of that narrative. So for example, like eat up your food, you know, don't waste food. Like kids in Africa are starving. You know that, that that kind of narrative is so embedded in, in kind of Western ideas of Africa, and it's you know and, and it, it feeds into this kind of like idea of like well that's just Africa's role in the world is to suffer and to starve, um, you know and I think I think the the Chinese kind of development story like presents a very stark challenge to that narrative and particularly a very stark challenge I think to the to the complacency and complicity of of many Western countries in in the in those processes, um, and I think that. That's part of why I think the, the Chinese presence in Africa makes many Western countries so uncomfortable is because it presents this kind of like very interesting kind of like different lens on the relationship between the West and Africa. Well, she brought up the B3W, and I think that was interesting. And she referenced a point that I made earlier, which is the fact that despite the, there are no proof points for B3W, and that, that's a key thing. And love or hate the Belt and Road, the Belt and Road has proof points. You can touch it, you can see it, you can see the airports, you can see the ports. The news today coming out of Kenya is that Ambassador Zhou Pingjian was talking to the folks at the Kenya Port Authority about integrating the Port of Mombasa and a new special economic zone linked in with the standard gauge railway into the ports in Gwadar in Pakistan and into the overland trade routes into Western China. Again, that is those are realities on the ground that B3W doesn't have, and I was pointing out that B3W has a very finite amount of time in order to prove itself before credibility just goes out the door. And again, to Mika's point, 
and I'm sure you're probably going to say the same thing, African stakeholders would love nothing more for the United States to come with a whole bunch of new ideas in the development space, a whole bunch of new capital, a whole bunch of green projects that are not uh, you know, fiscally irresponsible and don't add to the ballooning debts and whatnot. That would be fantastic and amazing, but they got to actually deliver. That's the key thing. So at this point right now, China is delivering on that front. We're going to see in the future what happens when traditional policy banks are no longer in that space. Will they provide as much capital as they have in the past? Are these new alternative lending methods that we're starting to see bubble up in the green shoots? Will that replace the policy banks? We don't know. That's, again, one of the clues we're going to be looking for from FOCAC. Final thoughts to you. Yeah, I think I think FOCAC will be a very interesting litmus test in terms of how outward-looking the Xi Jinping um, administration is at the moment. You know, um, it, it, it seems just in, in read, reading kind of signs, you know, from China, but like obviously reading signs from China is always a very complicated business. But the, you know, kind of the, the, they seem a lot less interested right at the moment in inter- international engagement than they were, say, a year ago this time. Um, and so it'll be, yeah, I think that'll be an interesting kind of kind of moment to see, to you know, to gauge. Um, like I, I completely agree with you. I think I think like many people in the global south are, are increasingly starting to think of of Western countries, and you know, obviously because the U.S. Is, is in such a strong leadership position there, the U.S. particularly, as the big talk coalition right kind of like there's a lot of talk a lot of plans a lot of great things that's going to be done done in the future with the great standards high blah 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 you know um and you know none of that has has emerged yet um you know so so you know so so that that is one thing that you know kind of questions about what china's international kind of you know, engagement is actually going to look like in the the coming decade is the other thing, and how those two are gonna are gonna work together is the third issue. You know, and and and, and there's no clear answers to any of them. I think. Well, let's leave the conversation there. Copes Knight will be back again next week with another episode. Starting in November, we're going to really turn our focus to what's going on with FOCAC. Again, we don't exactly know when it will happen. We are kind of just using back of the napkin date of November 28th and 29th, which again is the best information that we've received, but please don't quote me on that. It's not official. Uh, But so we're going to start leaning into that. We've got some great author interviews coming up this month as well. So lots of exciting things on the agenda. So that'll do it. Kobus and I will be back again next week. For Kobus Fenstaden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.